difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. We're not sure where Keith Phipps is right now. He said something about a conspiracy that he wanted to investigate, and we haven't seen him since. But we're hoping he'll make it back soon with his nose intact. Today, well, I can't just come out and tell you what films we're actually talking about today, because the shadowy powers that be don't actually want you to have that information. Genevieve? Scott, the best I can offer you this week is this boxed copy of the 1993 PC computer game, Myst. It's up to you to determine the rest. Okay, we could probably figure this out, right? Myst barely has any dialogue, so we're doing silent films this week, right? What's the most famous silent film? Probably F.W. Murnau's Sunrise or Buster Keaton's The General. Is there a theme linking either of those films to something currently in theaters? Maybe something with a military bent or a love story? What if you're overthinking this, Scott? Mist takes place on an island, which you have to explore to find clues. Maybe we're doing island-related mystery films like Shutter Island or The Wicker Man. No, no, no. We already paired The Wicker Man with The Witch back in 2016. But maybe that's a clue, too. Something about repetition and magic. Or maybe this is more of a text mystery. Mist has four letters, and the game has four sequels. Four times four is 16. Are we pairing 16 candles with the sun as also a star? Okay, but the name Mist came from Jules Verne's 1874 novel The Mysterious Island, which has been adapted into films a bunch of times. Maybe one of those adaptations has something to do with Avengers Endgame? Wait, End? Game? Could the end of Mist have something to do with the end of the MCU's Phase 3? Before we go down that rabbit trail and somebody accuses us of spoilers, have you considered that the Illuminati might be involved with this somehow? Guys, it was just a joke about puzzles. The rest of the script for the intro is in the Mist box. I just stuck it in there so you can open up the box and find it. It's not that complicated. Oh, but, but we had so many good ideas. Yeah, I, was, I, I was kind of I, excited I, I mean, about some roll. of these. Yeah. Are you sure the Illuminati aren't involved? I, I mean, I don't make any promises. <laughs> Okay, fine. I've got your box script and I'll just read it for you, I guess. But then I'm going to find an emulator and replay Mist, just in case I'm misting something I'll need to know later. Wow. She wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Just to be clear, Tasha wrote this script. It's a conspiracy against both of you. All right. This week, we're looking at two different paranoid mysteries where everything seems to be a clue that leads to another clue. And the end point of the mystery doesn't seem to have anything to do with the beginning point. We'll start with Roman Polanski's 1974 classic Chinatown, about a well-off private investigator who starts with a simple philandering case and winds up peeking into a secret battle for control of Los Angeles, on top of a horrifying family mystery. Then we'll bring in David Robert Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake, about an aimless young L.A. resident who starts chasing a missing woman he was hoping to sleep with, and ends up involved in a billionaire's disappearance, a series of bizarre murders, and a seemingly bottomless series of secret messages being delivered throughout L.A. Under the Silver Lake consciously plays on a lot of the tropes that Chinatown helped turn into traditions, but it's also a bit of a parody of that kind of film, and a love letter to it, and a lot of other things. Yep. So we're going to dig our decoder rings out of our cereal boxes, check every available space around us for hidden clues, and then step out into the sun-baked, star-filled hell of L.A. Noir for several hours. We'll see what hidden secrets are revealed when we look at Chinatown and Under the Silver Lake together. (laughs) 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Los Angeles, 1937. There are lots of guys like J.J. Gittes. They're easy to find if you want to find them. Mr. Gittes, have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. Since you agree with me that we've never met before, you must also agree with me that I've never hired you to do anything, certainly not spy on my husband. I don't get tough with anyone, Mr. Giddies. My lawyer does. You do your job. And sometimes you find the answers to questions that should never be asked. Or you find out what happens to people who ask them. Hold it there, kitty cat. You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to a nosy fellow? I dislike the word cheat. Did you have affairs? Mr. Giddies. Did he know about it? Where were you when your husband died? You were seeing someone, too. For very long? I don't see anyone for very long, Mr. Giddies. It's difficult for me. Mr. Giddies. You're dealing with a disturbed woman who just lost her husband. I don't want to take an advantage of. The truth. I said I want the truth. Chinatown screenwriter Robert Town famously got the film's title and the key exchange, What Did You Do in Chinatown? as little as possible, from an LAPD friend of his. The man reportedly said that white cops assigned to LA's Chinatown district found it difficult to sort through all the languages and dialects they faced there, so they never knew if they were helping or hurting a situation, and they just tried to stay out of the way. It could certainly be argued that because Chinatown protagonist Jake Giddies, played by Jack Nicholson, doesn't play by that rule, everyone suffers. This isn't a film about heroes making a difference. It's a classic 1970s post-Watergate paranoid thriller about how institutes are corrupt and untrustworthy, the rot stretches from the top to the bottom, and anyone digging into what's really going on is going to regret it, both because of the dangerous and possibly lethal consequences, and because nothing they learn is going to improve their lives. Chinatown is frequently cited on lists of the best films of all time, and especially best screenplays of all time, but it didn't spring out of nowhere fully formed. It follows a long tradition of Tinseltown mysteries and L.A. noir films that echo stories by Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. It just updates them for a 70s era of cocky swagger and nihilistic endings. Jake is an unusual figure for any kind of noir film. Per the usual pattern, he's a private investigator who gets in over his head, but he isn't the usual struggling sad sack who's operating from somewhere near the bottom of the bottle or fighting to make ends meet near the back half of his glory days. Jake is successful and well-established with a staff of assistants, no problems getting work, and his name frequently in the papers. He tracks down mysteries with confident, even contemptuous style, bluffing his way into his target's offices and ransacking their desks, or begging a business card from a new acquaintance so he can pretend to be them to get past a police cordon just a few hours later. 
and other parts of Chinatown don't fit the familiar mold either. Faye Dunaway, as Evelyn Mulray, isn't the usual femme fatale, half legs, half schemes. She's a decent person, though the audience doesn't necessarily know that until it's too late for her. And the hateful, controlling figure who the P.I. Patsy would normally take down, in this case, Hollywood hero John Houston, as water magnate Noah Cross, walks away from the story victorious, with all the cards in his hands. It's as cynical a film as they come, summed up in the admonition, forget about it, it's Chinatown. Meaning, even if you do know the truth here, it's futile to try to do anything about it. Chinatown came at an odd time for Polanski. It was the first feature he made in America after fleeing the country when his pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, was murdered in Los Angeles by members of the Manson family. And it was the last film he made in America before permanently fleeing the country ahead of his sentencing for sexual abuse of a teenager. Certainly there have been any number of film historians over the years who've tried to conceptually connect Chinatown's dark, bitter look at L.A. with Polanski's feelings about America, especially since Robert Town reportedly wanted a much less dark and gruesome ending for the movie. But regardless of Polanski's personal connection with the content, Chinatown does feel of a piece with its era, and particularly with other films about the contrast between Hollywood's sunny environs and dream-making business and the ruthless exploiters who take advantage of both. What makes Chinatown stand out from so many other films in the same vein is its darkness, but also its tightness. The mystery at its core is complicated, but Town makes it easy to track how one discovery logically leads to another, and how that old detective story blend of motives desire for money, curiosity about the truth, and just a grim stubbornness in the face of threats and bullying, all combine to send Jake down a road he can't seem to turn off of, no matter what it costs him. In the end, he can't help any of the victims, and he's more or less become one himself. He's maybe wiser about the world and the evil in it, but not sure what to do about it. In the end, the film implies, his biggest sin was ignoring that advice to do as little as possible and stay out of the deep end where the sharks swim. Tell me, um, what are the beliefs, sir? They're calling it an accident. Who's the investigating officer? Lou Escobar. He's a lieutenant. You know him? Oh, yeah. Where from? We used to work together in Chinatown. <clears throat> Would you call him a capable man? Very. Honest? As far as it goes. Of course, he has to swim in the same water we all do. Of course, but you've no reason to think he's bungled the case. None. Not too bad. Too bad? Hmm. Disturbs me. It makes me think you're taking my daughter for a ride. Financially speaking, of course. What are you charging her? My usual fee. What's the bonus if I get results? Are you uh, sleeping with her? Come, come, Mr. Gift. You don't have to think about that to remember. If you want an answer to that question, Mr. Cross, I'll put one of my men on the job. Well, of course, we have to start any film discussion of a Roman Polanski movie with the elephant in the room. I have a really hard time with the Roman Polanski question because I've been through it so many times. You know, it, at the Dissolve, whenever a movie of his came up in any capacity, uh, people would just crowd in to remind us of Roman Polanski's crimes which is something that I don't want to fail to take seriously. But at the same time, I feel like it's been relitigated a hundred million times. So why don't we acknowledge the elephant in the room in that regard? Um, I'd be interested in your feelings on it and then move on. So we don't have to spend this entire podcast talking about it. Elephant. Hello. <laughs> elephant. Hello. Um, nice to meet you. Our old friend, the elephant, the relationship between an artist's actions 
off screen in their personal life and what what they do on the screen is obviously a very complicated one for me it ends up turning into you know becoming like how do i actually feel watching this movie and oftentimes it has to do with how much the you know how recent the film is or how uh how much there there's specific action in the movie that seems to signal relate to uh behavior off screen it's very hard for me to make those associations with a movie like chinatown which is so which has been in my mind for such is existed for such a long time before i was really all that i would say cognizant but like before i had any kind of reckoning or the culture had any, any kind of reckoning with roman polanski's behavior it was just a classic film that i that i loved when i you know that i've seen a couple several times and really dug and so it's it's i don't find the film hugely difficult to process if that makes any sense even the the revelation of about noah cross and uh and evelyn cross i mean <laughs> that that is sort of where yeah. it becomes where this kind of thing in general becomes uncomfortable to me you know the the recent michael jackson documentary that hbo did and kind of the revelation that some of his songs do seem to be about grooming children mm. uh at the point where the art and the crime conflate directly, I think you end up with a much more complicated situation than like the blanket hand-waving statement of separate the art from the artist. Yeah, I don't want to hand-wave anything exactly, but um, but I, I, guess I, I guess I might see what you mean. I, the, the other issue is that this film is just as strongly, if not more strongly associated with Robert Town mm-hmm. than it is with Roman Polanski. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how I come at it. Well, or how I come at it is like the human mind is capable of holding two different ideas in its head at the same time and that's kind of what you have to do with a movie like Chinatown which is objectively a great movie and speaking to the Robert Town of it all with movies in particular and and this is where like I think auteur theory uh, like gets uh, really complicates the whole art versus artist uh, debate because there are so many with, with a few exceptions most movies have so many different people involved in bringing them to the screen and a movie like Chinatown like yes it's a very well directed movie and like presumably he got some great performances out of those actors but those actors do a lot of work and the music does a lot of work and the script of course does a lot of work the cinematography all this other parts of this movie that you can acknowledge and appreciate independent of his involvement well consider this too is that I think that the film so mirrors a different era in Hollywood. I mean, not only not only the '70s, but but really, it evokes an era before that when the studio system was much more collaborative. When when the director was just one piece of a larger production puzzle that was being assembled by the studio head, which in this case is Robert mm-hmm. Robert Evans. And again, I don't want to give too much credit to Robert <laughs> Evans either. And I certainly, and, and of course, you could litigate Robert Evans's life as well. But but it, it feels egalitarian this production in a way that, say, Woody Allen's Manhattan does not feel I mean that sure. feels wholly his and feels much more like a case where you're kind of like how am I going to watch that again um, how am I going to feel about that so there's yeah. also there's also the fact that this is a dark movie you know it's not like this is some you know sunny romantic comedy that you have to reconcile with Polanski's past like I'm not in, in no way am I suggesting that like Polanski's actions somehow like amplify what's in Chinatown but I in terms of reconciling reconciling it i think it's a lot easier to do with a film that is kind of like in the mud of human tragedy and misery like this is when it's darkness that has enveloped his life that he is both responsible for and not responsible for Mm -hmm. i mean his whole entire life has been i mean you know and you see that reflected in uh 
the pianist and, and sure. his memories of the Holocaust as well. I mean, there's been extraordinary darkness that has been afflicted upon him and that he has afflicted upon other people. So it's a complicated situation. It is a complicated situation, but I, I would like to think that we can talk about our appreciation of this film without coming across as dismissive about, mm-hmm. you know, the experience of a rape victim and without coming across as uh, indifferent to the people who have suffered and are still suffering in Hollywood and are, are trying to get their message out to the world. Uh, that said, this is this is a good movie. Yeah? <laughs> I mean, people kind of people kind of like this film, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 still incredible. Yeah. What's do do you guys have histories with this film at all, Scott? It sounds like you came to it pretty early on. Yeah, I mean, it was just in the flow of everything else I was experiencing as a young cinephile, trying to see as many movies as I could. You know, I think it was one of those movies that I probably first encountered on VHS pan and scan (laughs) and then and then and and liked on a certain level and then and then saw on a theater or saw on on, um, Laserdisc or something and and, uh, appreciated more and of course appreciated plenty uh, this time as well. I just I have such and this will be a theme throughout both of these episodes. I just love this specific tradition of film noir of la noir you know the types of heroes who um are the set of the movie and who are so full of ambiguity and darkness and yet there's a there's kind of a strange surrealist aspect to these films and a shaggy dog aspect to these films and a pervasive sense of the city as um full of secrets and full of extremely powerful people who are doing things that you cannot see and that you can only kind of guess at. And if you guess correctly, you're in big, big trouble. Uh, This is only my second time with this film. The first time I encountered it was probably like, oh, almost 15 years ago at this point when I, uh, in grad school, I uh, made it a project to fill in some holes in my film education and made my way through the AFI's 100 Greatest Films uh, list. I remember that. Yeah. um, And this was on there. I think it's 19. 20 one of those um so I, I watched it then but i watched it amid a bunch of supposedly the greatest films in, in cinema history and i admit that like it kind of had faded into the recesses of my memory a little bit and also just 15 years is a long time i'm sorry <laughs> i don't have that great a memory mm-hmm. um so I, I wasn't like completely fresh coming into it but i felt pretty fresh particularly when it came to the specifics of the mystery and i had very little recollection of how that worked so coming back to it this time like I was immediately struck by just how efficient of a movie, how efficient the script is, uh, Mm -hmm. and how it just throws you into it immediately. And just every beat sets up another beat. You know, it's like constantly forward, forward moving. The way the characterization stems from the plot is really impressive, I think. Like, we're never really told anything about Jake Giddis. We just like, get it we get it (laughs) from from what is happening in the plot you know and some little asides here and there um there's no like you know opening voiceover narration from him you know kind of establishing who he is and what what he's all about you know it all just kind of occurs organically within the story there there did used to be uh, like wall-to-wall narration and polanski trashed it which reminds me uh, so much of blade runner yeah the, the situation there i kind of wish there was a cut out there with it so we could see what that felt like but also i hate narration so much i hate it when the the protagonist is trying to explain what you're saying i don't hate all narration like like just automatically like i think it can be used well but it's so unnecessary here and it like having it would take away from what is very impressive about this the screenplay and the and the direction 
Yeah, I feel like when I first saw this movie, I was I was relatively young, like possibly college age. And my experience with it was just sort of bafflement because of, you know, I knew enough about film noir to know when I was seeing a film noir that wasn't a film noir that kept upending my expectations. And one of the ways Chinatown upends your expectations is that it just profoundly doesn't end where it starts. You yeah. know, it's it's mm-hmm. the mystery keeps evolving. What he's looking into keeps evolving. Where he ends up is in a place that's completely alien to the man that starts the movie. And I think the first time through, I was just a little baffled and thrown by that and trying to figure out how one thing led to another Mm -hmm. and like every subsequent viewing i just get more impressed by how tight the progression is and how how followable it is we'll definitely get into that more with under the silver lake (laughs) which i think makes fun of that exact kind of uh, (laughs) story progression but here i just think it's it's really interesting how the evolution of jake over the course of the film progresses and how the evolution of the mystery and everybody's relation to him changes that kind of evolution i think is a very standard thing for mystery films and noir films as the antagonists start to realize that the protagonist isn't just a gadfly he's a problem Mm -hmm. uh and then like take the fight to him and then start to be afraid of him there's always sort of that progression but how he responds to it feels like relatively unique i I was curious to ask you know because this film doesn't tell us anything because we learn about uh, jake Giddis as the film goes along i mean i think we can talk about his progression as being someone who starts from a fairly cynical place who is the type of guy you pay to go and take snap pictures of whoever your wife or husband is sleeping with and that's his primary gig and you you may speculate as i did about like what led him out of the force and where we start with him where was his head at that's something to think about but i I like the idea of this itch that he just has to scratch and and he realizes i think early on that the more he digs into this the worse it's going to be for him and he just can't stop himself because he has some sense of justice that's still kind of like these like kind of low burning embers inside of him that he that he just can't kind of stifle you kind of see that in the scene in the barber shop where the banker guy is kind of giving him guff for what he got in the papers and you know Mm. being a bottom feeder or whatever you know and jake has a really intense reaction to that you know and um he puts it in a relative frame like well at least i'm not you know a bank lender or whatever but you can still see in him like there is a part of him that like thinks what he does is valid and necessary and doesn't like the idea of being told otherwise so i think he has a code that's a, a part of the detective tradition too you know the, the man has a code and i think maybe he when we first see him like doesn't necessarily even realize it it's just in his emotional reactions to things but it is what drives him through this mystery I think his emotional journey throughout this is just really interesting. I, I think watching him pro- progress from the guy who tells a really long and uh, annoying story about how Chinamen screw, uh, while <laughs> while Evelyn Mulray is standing right oh. behind him, looking impatient, to the guy at the end who's uh, feels like he's actually he actually did have enough uh, idealism left to shatter, and he just didn't realize it until it was shattered. I, I think that's an interesting progression. But I really like. 
the way he's characterized throughout this movie, you find out so much of what you need to know about him by the way he smirks at that newspaper that has his name in it. You know, he's not waving it around and bragging. He doesn't come into his office and say, hey, guys, we made mm-hmm. the paper or hey, guys, that piece we planted made the paper or hey, guys, my contact got us in the paper. Like all of those things are, are gilding the lily. You get everything that you need just from Jack Nicholson's smirk as he sees like, well, yeah, there's just a sense of, yeah, made in the paper again. Good for me. Uh, and then that super defensive, bristly response. And various points where he's dealing with Evelyn, where you can see him just kind of crushed under like the the weight of her aristocratic regard. I kind of love the way he's characterized. I mean, what do you what do you think about his performances and the performances in this film in general? That's an easy softball yeah. question. Yeah. I, I don't think this is going to be I think they're all univer- uniformly terrible. No. no, I mean, Nicholson is, I don't want to say iconic in this role, but, you know, it's close. I think is uh, you can get to justifying that. Uh, adjective uh, applies here you know it's I mean mean, it was a kind of iconic role for him but the quality he brings to Jake like Jack Nicholson has such a sense of wryness to him that everything not everything Jake does but a lot of what Jake does has this sort of humorous edge that is like never actually out and out humor that horrible joke included but it softens the character a little bit in a way that I think is very productive to bringing out that emotional trajectory he goes through. You know, he's not like hard bitten from the jump. You know, he no. has a, a sense of interiority, a sense of uh, a sense of humor, in how he goes about his his life. And I think that's something that we came to expect from Nicholson, particularly in this period. If you think about Five Easy Pieces and uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. The first thing you think about is like is how how wry he can be, how funny he can be, how irreverent he can be, uh, how he can be Jack, you know, Jack, right? <laughs> the Jack we know. But in all of those films, there's always that other layer that's um, soulful and tragic, and that he's just hides so well, uh, and, that, and that kind of surprises you when it comes out when you realize in a film like Chinatown that Jake um, really cares about what's happening and, you know, and, and is willing to take it as far as he can uh, to figure out what's going on and, and to try to stop something unjust from happening. And that's, you know, really great acting. That said, it's always bothered me that, you know, taking it as far as it will go in this case means slapping the hell out of a woman until well, answers fall out. Like, yeah. <laughs> not just because he he hits a woman and blah, blah, chivalry, blah, because, uh, you know, I I firmly believe in film equality that says if a, if a man in a bear suit needs to punch a woman in the face to escape an island where he's going to be uh, burned. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, got it. Got a little distracted wow. there. You know, you, you do what you got to do. Uh, and part of equality means like women can be tough antagonists and sometimes you got to slap them. That being the case, she's she's so like pained and lost mm-hmm. in this film. And he literally beats answers out of her. And it, I, that scene makes me so uncomfortable. I mean, there's definitely a couple of uncomfortable moments that I attribute more to the screenplay in the era than the performance the horrible joke we mentioned is is another such instance you know that i mean they're not my favorite parts of this movie but i don't necessarily think of them as flaws in the performances and going back to that moment with him slapping evelyn in terms of performances i think like 
Jack Nicholson's performance plays off Faye Dunaway's in a really interesting way because she, Evelyn, is just so brittle is the the only word I can think of. You know, like she's so very like tightly laced, tightly wound. She's aloof when we first meet her, but you just have this sense that there's something inside of her that could snap at any time, you know, mm-hmm. and she's very good at evoking that. So when Jake has this sort of explosive moment of uh, revelation, you know, it just like those two forces kind of come up against each other in this violent way. And I'm not using that to like justify the hitting of a woman in any way, but I think it's sort of those two performances, characterizations, like peaking uh, simultaneously in very different ways. What it reminds me of is you know one of my favorite noir films, In a Lonely Place. Did you, are there, you see In a Lonely Place with Humphrey Bogart? Oh God, so long ago. But I mean, the, the whole the notion there is like it is Humphrey Bogart's character is accused of murder. Um, that spoiler alert that he did not commit, right? But he's in this he's in this relationship with this woman, and the, and there's this this question about whether he did what he's being accused of doing. And there is a point where he where he, his temper, which is quite bad, where he does snap in a very similar way to the way Nicholson snaps here. And the question of whether he committed murder becomes in the context of that relationship irrelevant because he's capable of this level of violence, even though in other aspects he is a soulful caring guy and so it it seemed to me that there was some connection there between the relationship here and the relationship in in, in that movie of, of a lead character that we could describe as soulful and caring but also extremely volatile and capable of being overcome by his his, his demons and capable of doing something I terrible. Mean, and he's he's not a not violent person. Like we see him beating the crap out of people, either in self defense or not, a couple times. You know, outside of that that slapping scene. You know, mm-hmm. like Jake is not a a pacifist. <laughs> you know, by 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 any means. But again, I think I, in the end, attribute that to creating a character like in this era where mm-hmm. and like what is believed to be necessary to get things done especially when like you have this. no rules i mean you're a private eye you can do what right. you, you, you want information you can beat it out of somebody although and no, he gets, nobody nobody's gonna say anything about in it. in true private eye fashion he gets the crap beaten out of him more often <laughs> yeah he i does. think the there's a really interesting just kind of like desperate sloppy physicality to like the mm, fight scene at the yeah. orange grove or the fight scene at the retirement home where it really feels <laughs> pretty unchoreographed where yeah. it just feels like he's he's flailing around and like taking real punches or actually getting beaten in the head with a crutch like or getting his nose sliced by or getting his nose sliced, director. yeah by by Roman Polanski who apparently uh, was really sulky about having long hair that he had to cut off to play that cameo role <laughs> well Anyway, uh, poor Roman. Pl- let's go back yeah. to our old theme. Poor <laughs> Roman Polanski. Deep-seated Roman Polanski sympathy. The fight scenes in this film make me rethink how what fight scenes look like today, mm. because they're so polished, they're so choreographed, they're so planned, and so often they're just so cut to hell. So it's just like a, a blur of like conceptual fists. Yeah. And you like you look at something like John Wick. It's so much fun to watch in just a. Uh, like on a, a really gut level of like look at the choreography that goes into this but there is something to be said for this kind
kind of like raw earlier, like the word that comes to mind is Donnybrook because it's just so <laughs> old fashioned. Uh, like watching him again, I'm going to say flail, watching him flail and flap around in that orange groove sequence. Like it looks like real violence, which mm-hmm. is to say uh, chaotic and, and not very clean and maybe a little embarrassing for a lot of the people involved. And I, I find it a little fascinating. Also that nose slitting scene is really Ooh. convincing. Yeah. Yeah, I actually like rewatched it a couple times today just to like see if I could see how it was done, you know. And apparently, it's- there's a, there was a hinge in the knife that would and the knife would fold if Polanski handled it exactly right. But the way it was made, it could have actually cut his nose wide open uh, if if Polanski hadn't had had like twisted it in the wrong direction. Uh, you know, when you're reading these kind of of trivia items with that are completely unsourced, you never know whether it's true or not. But one of my favorite trivia items that I read for this, uh, you know, true or not, is that they got so tired of explaining it as people asked about it that they did eventually just claimed that Polanski cut his nose open for the film. <laughs> but luckily, luckily they filmed it entirely sequentially so he had the, ba- the bandage on in all the right scenes. <laughs> That's how you make movies, right? In order? I, you know, as usual, I'm going to just stump for John Huston oh, and man. what a yeah. delightful presence Incredible. he is whenever he's on screen. We talked about Other Side of the Wind uh, fairly recently and I have gone on about my my great appreciation of him as as Gandalf and <laughs> in films like Life and Time of Judge Roy Bean. He's just he's a a weird delight the way he throws himself into his roles. Yeah. And <laughs> here he's the combination of uh, ebullient friendliness and obvious sleaziness is just so so spot on. He he does gross while being friendly so well. And I, to me, the key to that performance and that character is his absolute refusal to say Jake's name correctly. Constantly <laughs> call him Gits because he just he he is just like a little bug to him that he can just swat away. There's no reason for him to consider. Uh, Jake a threat. He's going to take care of Jake however he's going to take care of him. And he's not at all alarmed by any of this. He is at least feels himself to be in complete control of the situation. And and, and so I think there's a certain arrogance and a, a crucial arrogance to him calling Jake uh, Gitz. I really hope this doesn't spoil that for you, but I have read that that happened because Houston couldn't get it right. And eventually <laughs> Polanski like, just had, had Nicholson toss in the line correcting him, and then other than that, just let it go as like a character thing. And I'd, I'd like to say that this was a work of genius where he recognized everything that you're, you're just saying, yeah. but it could have also just been, <laughs> I'm tired well. of trying to corral Houston. Who could possibly corral Houston. Happy accident. He's such a genius that he just like internalized that it would (laughs) be, you know, really resonant to do that. What do you guys make of the movie's shift effectively from a giant money conspiracy affecting all of LA and like affecting the anonymous little people of the world to a conspiracy like affecting like two two women, two women who are rape victims in a family. Like the the shift in scale and the the sort of the corresponding shift in intensity is part of what makes the ending of this movie but it's also just it's a very weird shift yeah it it i always feel like i'm missing something particularly when it comes to Catherine and her role in the pictures of mulray that were taken like i still can't quite square why how she 
became involved in that part of the mystery, you know, and if it has any relation to the family uh, tragedy, mystery, whatever you want to call it. That said, because of that progression that we were talking about at the beginning and how it moves so assuredly from one thing to the next, like you don't really even notice it until the end and like you think back on it, but it doesn't come off as like unsatisfying because you do get the answer to the big like institutional mystery like pretty early on mm-hmm. you, you know like in, like in the second act if you want to call that a loose end it's it's tied up but it's an interesting shift uh and i think it it works but it prevents you from like going back and making the pieces fit together in a very satisfying way which i think is probably purposeful but i think what it does do though with regard to both this rape and then also this municipal corruption is, is really give us a very visceral sense of moral rot, mm, you know, because yeah. I, I think that if you just have the situation with the, the water, which is important and interestingly tied to the real history of Los Angeles as a basically a desert town mm-hmm. by the by the ocean, all that stuff is fascinating. And you can get a sense of somebody who's corrupt enough to control the water and to exploit the city and it pervasively for however long that he does it. But, to, but I think... To, to have that same moral rot reflected in this very personal, absolutely appalling, disgusting, you know, rape subplot like that kind of brings everything home, brings the, brings the evil of this character and of, of, the, of the city home in a way that wouldn't have been possible without it. At the same time, it, it always it just frustrates me a little that we kind of like let go of the bigger plot in favor of looking at the small plot that we also can't deal with. You know, it's. It makes sense for a film sometimes to say there are larger systemic problems that we we can't fix. So let's focus on a small personal problem that we can fix. Let's make a difference for one person. And here the difference is negative. You know, Uh, Evelyn ends up dead. Catherine ends up with her rapist father slash grandfather. There's certainly a sense in him leaving with her that the cycle will continue and that it's a huge, it's a symbolic statement. The cycle is going to continue with her. The cycle is going to continue with all of LA. The cycle is going to continue with developers, with rich people, with uh, behind the scenes manipulations, with poor strivers who figure the answer out and then still can't do anything about it. It's just, it's a giant ball of you're helpless that's summed up in that it's Chinatown. You know, and and that statement, it's Chinatown, comes from the people who are theoretically in charge of fixing mm-hmm. crimes and who aren't going to. It's it's just a very, very dark, cynical movie yeah. that stops its momentum to make the point that you can't make a difference either on a large scale or a small scale. I mean, and that and that's connects it so much to the mood of the day and the thrillers of the day, too, uh, which are so much about finding getting to that point where the conspiracy is so large and the people behind it are so powerful that there's ultimately nothing you can do. Like if you're, if you get out with your life, you're fortunate um, uh, because there's nothing, you can't actually stop the thing that, that you're trying to stop. That said, this movie also ties very closely into the, the old noir tradition. And I, I talked a little in the intro about how, how interesting it is to me that we have like somebody in the femme fatale spot, but she isn't really a traditional femme fatale. We have somebody in the Patsy detective spot, but he doesn't fit a lot of the tropes for the Patsy PI. Are there other tropes in here that the movie is contending with, uh, either playing them straight or flipping them, that interest you? I, I, you know, I would say maybe push a little bit back against Jake 
being that much different from the type of character he's played that has appeared in other movies. I mean, I mentioned in The Lonely Places as being an example, but I'm thinking also of that Mike Hammer movie that um, called Kiss Me Deadly from 1955, mm. which is also about a private eye, Mike, Mike Hammer, played by Ralph Meeker, who gets who does everything to get to the bottom of the case and is constantly hitting people <laughs> you know and, and it's just and, and that one ends you know that one is about a you know of course what's in this the mystery box mm-hmm. and the mystery box is basically the ap- apocalypse um, so you get you know you talk about dark endings you don't get it darker than that of su- suggesting you know something truly you know world consuming but I, I do i do think that that um jake d- fits into a a tradition of you know la noir detectives that you can trace back to those movies yeah and then you ha- can talk about you know the long goodbye which had come out the year before you know that's that's a different that's a more of a lebowski type of detective or, and something maybe even closer to the andrew garfield character that we'll meet in under the silver lake but you know similar similar vibes lots of connections he's part he's part of a continuum more so than Evelyn, who really, as you say, is quite unique among femme fatales, and that and that she's a femme fatale, and that and that she is drawing the hero into danger, but she's not in the sense that she's she's not ultimately not a nefarious person; she's a quite damaged person. Sure, I remember it's been a long time for me for Kiss Me Deadly too, but I remember my camera in that film being a lot more blunt and hard bitten, yeah, uh, and a lot more inclined to solving his problems with with fists. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. What, the guy who's named Hammer? <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's, a, not, he's horrible. He's it's horrible not subtle. Name. But when I say that Jake feels a little more unique to me, it's because he's so urbane. Like, we we get a lot of characters like that later down the line. We get movies like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang or The Good Guys or what have you that are, are playing on that particular trope. You get some of it in L.A. Confidential with the character played by... Russell Crowe or Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce. Uh, that sort of sense of the guy who's got one foot in Hollywood and the other foot in the P.I. world. That, mm. that guy who might pivot at any moment to like take a bit part in a film for fun um, because he's, he's there in that world and he's capable of it. Uh, but with like your, your Raymond Chandler stories and your, well, Dashiell Hammett was a different thing because everybody in Dashiell Hammett is urbane. But a lot of the older noir movies were expressly about the kind of character that you see in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is another iteration mm-hmm. bouncing off Chinatown. Mm-hmm. You know, that character who's almost at the end of his rope and is kind of like pulled back by being given something meaningful to do. That guy who's found his way to the bottom of a bottle because he never had the money or he had the money and he lost it. He never had success or he had it and he lost it. And there's just nothing that feels desperate or cornered to me about Jack Nicholson here until he's gotten to the end of this mystery. He just, he starts on top of the world. That's he's, true. He's, got he's an, famous. He, he's got money. He's, he's got, got a staff. Good or, he's got a solid organization happening. He's, but he's but he also has a past. Like he was a detective mm-hmm. you know in, in in chinatown and some we you know we get some hints about something that happened with a woman that he was trying to protect and couldn't you know like he it's implied that there is a you know a split in his life you know but, uh, that he wasn't always this person that we see him now all right well as we as we head out the door on this one we are going to bring up a lot of a lot of different things about the mystery and the followability of the mystery and the details of the mystery uh when we get into connections in the next uh, part but i'm just going to ask what's up with the bifocals 
like at that at that point of the movie at the point of the movie where evelyn says those aren't her husbands like surely she's come to a point where she's telling the truth because she has no other choice right are we is there a mystery about the damn glasses or are they just mole rays and she's lying about them no, no they're, 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 John they're, they're noah crosses yeah, the John Hughes. He he, he wears an identical pair later. Ah. It's a little confusing because the, gla- yeah. the the glasses like they look the same, but but they're a different prescription. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I... So that, so those so those those are those are Noah's glasses. We did it. The, we the, solved the mystery. All right. Well, we've solved the mystery, and now everything <laughs> and makes salt, sense. The salt water. Yeah, I think uh, I think I managed to miss that detail. Yeah. I was too busy uh, paying attention to great. We're, you nose know, continuity on the really technical pretty, you get, some, get some really pretty fish going back there. But it's bad for the glass. It's bad for the glass. <laughs> the glass is. <laughs> oh, boy. Now we're back to mystery jokes. We'll be right back with feedback after this. Now it's time for feedback, where our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Scott, can you read this first one for us? Sure. Christopher Pensacola has some thoughts on Jordan Peele's Us that will only make sense if you've seen the movie and know about the ending. Spoilers ahead, but also just opinions that require some knowledge of the film. He writes, I'm with Tasha on my initial response to Jordan Peele's Us. This film wasn't scary. What is scary, however, is the endgame for the tethered. Red slash Adelaide's plan is ridiculous for one central reason. It was dreamed up by a jilted child. All the 80s references are precisely what top world Adelaide would have to relate to the topside world. So naturally, when the grand adult scheme of now underworld Adelaide comes to pass, it's a poorly thought out but ultimately successful siege. Red never saw how Hands Across America turned out. She had the idealism of a child who saw a grand event bent toward helping the homeless and maybe became bewitched by the idea. For all she knew, with just her t-shirt as a reminder, the charity event went off as planned. She had no other new references to draw from. The horror is that the plan is a repetition of a cultural joke by someone who wasn't around for the punchline. Someone without a plan. In your discussion, you teased the question of whether the post-film worlds of Body Snatchers and Us would be better. The former is an assimilation story that could very well end with the death of humanity, which is bad, I guess. But the world the pod people make could be better. The world the tethered make would decidedly fail. They're not equipped to create a functional society. Presumably, they stand in that human chain until they die of starvation or exhaustion. Adelaide will be the queen of a quickly collapsing kingdom. But hey, at least she wiped out all those who wrong-slashed-abandoned her. There's something to be said of Adelaide's self-assimilation after the 1986 switcheroo. Had other tethered made the same jump to the surface, there could have been hope for them to learn how to behave normally. If she could build a life for herself in the top world, maybe others could have too. But since that's not the story we received, my main takeaway is this. If the tethered knew about Etsy, they could have made a killing producing bespoke red jumpsuits out of materials they found where? Uh, let's not read into it too much. I mean, there is, just as with the rabbits, there is sort of a question of where all the red jumpsuits and scissors and gloves came from. But that's as maybe. I like the idea, the central idea here that the reason the plan makes no sense is it's based on 
like very old data as seen through a child's eyes. I, mm. I think that's a really neat observation. Yeah, that is good. I, it's very hard, though, for me to dig into this plan too much. <laughs> as I think we've stated it on the show itself. I think this is the third, the third episode in a row where you've stated your I just lack of desire to dig I into just, the plan. Because <laughs> it, it really, really, all the questions that he has make perfect sense to me. I have no answer to that i can't i don't think the film has a good answer for that um and my solution is to try to just let it go and be the film it's going to be always i just because because it doesn't hold the plan doesn't hold up to any scrutiny but i'm interested i am interested in, in that like in the idea of what the planet is like when the people <laughs> when the others take over that's an interesting question that i don't think we that i don't think we addressed for either of these movies like what what does that world look like when the tethered are in control of it or when the pod people are in control of it well i mean we talked about the what what the world is like when the pod people take over like the possibility that there are no wars because nobody's angry nobody's selfish Mm. everybody's part of the same continuum um, I mean, that's a question that I think all of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers movies wrangle with in some way is just the question of, is humanity better with all of these negative things bred out of it, yeah, even if that means true. they're not human anymore? Yeah. I think with the tethered, there's never really any question of they're not they're not going to take over. It's not a question of what is this world like when the tethered take over it because they're not capable of it. They've each gone and stabbed somebody that was specifically in their way, and now they're lined up in a giant daisy chain. Like they're they're making no effort to take over the world. Uh, it's like they've come to some kind of apotheosis that they were headed to, and I think. The alienness of that goal, the alienness of that final image uh, is is shocking and interesting and, again, doesn't necessarily symbolically explain anything to us in terms of what the movie's trying to do. But you're not impressed by their adaptability? I mean, they come up out of a world that apparently consists of a few rooms full of rabbits. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. And they managed to hunt There's down a, their, uh, there, it, their opposites. Know, the, 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 earth, the bounty of the earth is quite quite more significant than what they were dealing with uh, that's down true below. maybe they'll maybe once they all let go of each other's hands they will be fine hunting rabbits down in the woods for <laughs> all eternity but it's it, there's definitely a very real question of what the future of the tethered is as long as they're lined up in a neat little line they're really going to be pretty easy for like one combat helicopter to just mow them all down which seems like the most adequate response to you just killed an entire town Man, this guy, this went to a dark place. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike the movie, which is, of course, all uh, sunshine and and light all the way down. Uh, Genevieve, if you want to read us uh, another one. Sure. Eric from New Brunswick, Canada, jumped us back to our pairing of Dan Gilroy's Velvet Buzzsaw with Bucket of Blood. We're just doing all the the episodes I wasn't on today. (laughs) Uh, He writes, I appear to be on the minority side of the viewing audience in my appreciation for Velvet Buzzsaw. Perhaps it's my tendency to be a horror apologist generally, or specifically owing to my recently filling in some early Dario Argento films I'd yet to see. But this art-slash-horror-slash-comedy mash-em-up swing between art satire and artful victimization didn't really bother me. I've let much thinner premises carry towards much less satisfying buzzsaws over the years. Again, see Argento, for example. I would agree that maybe there is a problem with the film's two halves fitting together. But my take is it's because the situations and characters built up in the early going are more thorough and enjoyable than you'd normally hope to get in a very large percentage of horror films. So, if you become interested in the world from the setup of the film, then it's easy to see how the horror elements would be disappointing. 
But if you're just waiting for the horror half of the equation, then the richly detailed setup is just a nice bonus. That's where my liking of the film comes in, I guess. And some seem to base their disappointment in Dan Gilroy following up Nightcrawler with this film. But I would say that the two films share the central thematic focus on how ambition can be a truly destructive motivator. I would also say that Gilroy actually followed up Nightcrawler with his script for Kong Skull Island, proving that he's a man who enjoys making his big budget B movies. <laughs> you know, one, one thing I would point out, though, in response to Eric's very good letter is that Dan Gilroy is not Dario Argento. I mean, and that's the problem, right? I mean, that's that ends up being the problem with the last half of the movie the horror half of the movie is that just on on the level of a an effective exciting you know stylish horror set piece he just doesn't deliver the goods period uh, you know in, in that he's much more comfortable in the more metaphorical cutthroat world of the art scene than he is with actually giving you a shock am i right on that I haven't watched enough Argento. Um, I'm a, a noted non-fan of Suspiria, uh, compared at least to the rest of the world. <laughs> Scott Terrible. just classic Scott, Scott just scrunch swallowed faced. his own lips in frustration. <laughs> but I mean, but you can recognize that that uh, that Suspiria is a is a stylish film with very sure. striking set pieces. Sure, but what I'm saying is, uh, like on a I guess a quality level, on a, a level of uh, both achieving what it sets out to do and achieving what it sets out to do in a way that I personally like. I like Nightcrawler as a film better than I like Suspiria. Uh, I just find it, I, I find it so much more focused and, and hard hitting and, and not requiring me to wonder why somebody has a room full of barbed wire. <laughs> why, why do I, why does Suspiria have scary barbed wire? And or, kind of cool. There's nothing scary it's about arty. a giant swimming pool room full of... Wow. Where you, if you have a bunch of barbed wire, where are you going to keep it? If not, if not some random room, you know, I I don't live in a house. What big is a garage? But a random room, <laughs> a random room full of barbed wire, yeah. as it happens. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the one of the core things in this letter that's really interesting is that that feeling of it depends on what your expectations are. It depends on what you're looking for and, and waiting for in the film. And I have a real problem as a film appreciator, which is different from a film critic, uh, in that I love to see, I love to go into a movie knowing nothing about it and just having the experience unfold. But there are times when I think my own uh, expectations within the film itself as it unfolds gets in the way. And I feel like a film always plays better if you have no idea what to expect the first time. And then it often plays better the second time when your expectations aren't in the way, when you know what kind of film you're getting, when when you can appreciate all the grace notes instead of playing the what's going to happen next in the story game. But I almost never rewatch films because there are so many films I haven't seen. So it is possible that Velvet Buzzsaw would play better to me the second time around when I know it's going to take that sharp turn into we don't care about the characters anymore. We're looking for artful ways to destroy them but i still i i want to say that i th i think i would still feel disappointed at the the contrast between like the really elaborate built-up world and the kind of cynical hand wavy bucket of blood world i will just say that i just don't think Yoroi has the chops i mean that that was my i feel pretty confident that that impression of the film i'm not really going to return to it you know i i like that that the film was going to go in that direction was was going to turn from you know, does turn it from a satire into more of a horror film. I'm fine with that shift. I'm usually quite excited by films that take um, to that kind of gear shift like that. A lot of cough, my favorite... cough, audition, cough. Exactly, audition or or you know or sunrise or any number of 
my any number of my favorite movies do that. But I just think I just think that he just he's good at one thing and not good at the other, and that's that's kind of where I land on night on um, Velvet Buzzsaw. Yeah, I think that's pretty understandable. Well, we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero or email us at comments at nextpictureshow dot net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll pair Chinatown with a much shaggier dog of a tale featuring someone killing dogs. But is that relevant to the narrative? Is anything relevant to the narrative of Under the Silver Lake, apart from a love of classic cinema and a fascination with mystery? We'll consider how both films ha- handle twisty mystery next week. <laughs> Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, everyone, take a little time to hug your sister or your daughter or your sister or your daughter. You never know how much time you're going to have with them. That's dark. The wind and the rain To your detriment you try to explain Swallowed up in the squall I can't walk away at all